Hello and welcome to another episode of Author Conversations brought to you again by Arcadia Publishing. I'm Jonathan Foster and this week we're going to be exploring a very interesting book. Lots of stories that could be made into movies. I'm talking with the authors of Hidden History of Kentucky Political Scandals, Robert Shraggy and John Schaff. At various points in history, Kentucky's politics and government have been rocked by scandal, and each episode defined the era in which it happened. In 1826, Governor Desha pardoned his own son for murder. In horrific crime, Governor Goebel was assassinated in 1900. James Wilkinson was branded a traitor against Kentucky and the nation. Honest Dick Tate ran away with massive amounts of money from the state treasury. In modern times, Operation Bop Trot resulted in perhaps the biggest scandal in the state. Authors Robert Schrage and John Schaff offer a fascinating account of Kentucky's history and its many unique and scandalous characters. Robert and John, thanks for joining me. Hey, good Thank to you. be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. All right, so every state has political scandals, but the two of you decided to go back and historically document some because I'm sure there are more in your state's history, but Kentucky's political scandals, you documented some of them. And while I always say history is more interesting than fiction because so much fiction comes from history, and guys, so many stories in this book could be a movie. We go back in the Bluegrass State's history before it was the Bluegrass State, and many people know Kentucky was part, many people don't know, rather, that Kentucky is part of Virginia. Um, how was it going back and finding all these stories? Well, you know, that was one of the first surprises that I had in the, in the book was, you know, you think about political scandals and you think about them being through history, but sort of later history when states had enough money to embezzle and stuff. So I sort of had the idea going in that, you know, Kentucky wouldn't have real good political scandals until probably, you know, maybe 30, 40 years after statehood. But that really wasn't the case. As you said, Kentucky came out of Virginia and uh, that created controversy right there. I mean, there were some controversies going back uh, when Kentucky was part of Virginia, you know, whether or not uh, the land had the state had Kentucky had ever been really succeeded to Virginia. But the real first controversy in Kentucky actually happened before statehood. It really had to do with, uh, you know, people who were land surveyors and, and going to the state of Kentucky, you know, from Pennsylvania and from Virginia to try to make money as as land was being, you know, surveyed. And that's that really is some of the first political scandals. I mean, as an example, there was a guy named Thomas Hamilton, and and he was the first surveyor of Fayette County, which is one of the largest counties in state. Well, he hired a um, a deputy named uh, Humphrey Marshall, and uh, Marshall was was absolutely a, a corrupt individual, and he just reeked of dishonesty. And what he would do is he would, you know, he would charge double fees for for land grants. And then people wouldn't be able to pay him off in the 12 months, and he'd be the first one to know about it. And so, when when they didn't pay it off, he'd quickly go in and uh, and put the put the plats in in his name. And you know, he was able to acquire almost 100,000 acres this way. And another surveyor was able surveyor was able to get over 800,000 acres this way. And so that sort of set set the tone. That was certainly dishonesty. Whether or not it was legal at the time probably was an issue then, but um, 
we certainly had scandals beforehand, and that's really where the first ones happened. But also, sort of be- right after statehood, the the tradition started, as we call it. And while this wasn't completely illegal, it certainly wasn't. You know, it was certainly controversial, and that started with the second gubernatorial election, where where a person, uh, you know, won uh, the Kentucky Electoral Electoral College out of four candidates to be the second governor of the state of Kentucky. Kentucky, but uh, instead of giving the candidate, you know, with none of them had a majority vote, so instead of giving the candidate with the most votes the, gu- the gubernatorial ship, uh, the Electoral College in Kentucky. And um, wound up giving it to the, a person named Garrett, who was the second highest vote, vote getters. And he became the second governor to succeed Isaac Shelby, who many of us uh, know. And that was a big, big uh, political controversy and probably one of the first episodes in the long history of election related uh, strife in, in Kentucky. No, there was, a, there was an issue with the state elections. You're kidding me all the way back then. So it's not Absolutely. a new thing that happened. You know, going back to what you said about, you know, whether it was illegal or not, I think when you're in business, they talk about getting on the ground floor or something. Well, if you're getting on the ground floor of a new state, you get to write the rules so you know how to bend them, I guess, when it came to land surveying and uh, the gentleman knowing how to bend the rules to go in and charging double and knowing when people weren't going to pay him. So... It works that way, Absolutely. too. Yeah, I mean, that's really where the money was at the, at, at the beginning of statehood. I mean, it was it was virgin territory, and it was the expansion to the West, and there was a lot of uh, lot of money available. And just think about the, front, the frontier. People always think, okay, Missouri gateway to the West, but even down at this time into Georgia, I mean, Augusta was kind of the frontier. West of Augusta, and that's huh. it's weird to think about now. But all yeah. of this, you know, you just said virgin territory, untouched by white settlers at this point in time. I mean, it was, I mean, there were battles, obviously, that had happened even during the Revolutionary War. You think about, you know, Daniel Boone um, fighting, I think, what was the gentleman's name, the Native American Blackfish, I think. So there were white settlers in the area at the time. But for the most part, untouched. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. And, you know, and the gateway to the West in some ways is, in my belief, expanded. I mean, Kentucky borders the North being Cincinnati, which mm-hmm. was a which was a major city. And uh, it it was the gateway to the, you know, to the to the West, you know, and then it's then it's farther out. That's in, yeah. in every one of these states. I mean, land surveying was a. Uh, a big deal, and I'm not saying every land surveyor was crooked or corrupt, but as John and I learned, you know, money is a big corrupter, and yeah. uh, state government corruption in state government, I'm sure, as John will tell you, uh, started when uh, money became available and the state budgets got bigger. Well, you know, going back to before statehood, the surveyors it had to do with money, and and it had to do with land, which was money, so. Yeah, and as much as we all love him, uh, George Washington was a surveyor. There might be some sketchy things. Well, there are some sketchy things if you look at that history too. So, um, you know, we there's it goes back to money. Uh, that green color. There's a reason money's green. Our money's green sure. here. So I think you know, it might have nothing <laughs> to do point. with it. But yeah. but the, one of the coolest stories 
in the book, I think, because just at the national implications, and it goes back to, because one of my favorite characters in the American Revolution is Daniel Morgan. Mm-hmm. And he's at the Battle of Saratoga. And lo and behold, who do we have a connection here in the book with James Wilkinson? Um, yeah. Wow. So this guy has all these connections, takes credit for things. And Hawaii, wow, he's here in Kentucky. What's he trying to do with Kentucky? And it goes back to statehood, not statehood, or a third option James Wilkinson sees. What's happening with Mr. Wilkinson? Yeah, well, he, he's he's really one of the most controversial figures in the, in Kentucky or Kentucky's early history and the nation's early history. He was he was born in Maryland, but his, his record is 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 amazing and it's and it's controversial. And on first blush, you would think James Wilkinson is a patriot and a hero, and to an ex, to to a certain level, he is. But the bottom line on James Wilkinson is the fact that he was a he was a traitor, and he served in the American Revolutionary war out of Pennsylvania. He was commissioned a, a captain. He served with Nathaniel Green during the mm. siege of Boston. You know, ironically, he actually um, served with, was an aide to Benedict Arnold, uh, although they didn't collaborate on, on, on controversies that I'm, I'm aware of. And then he was a, he was, um, you know, he was, um, he worked with General Horatio Gates. Now, the interesting part about about Wilkinson is, uh, you know, Gates, his sort of first deceit was Gates gave Wilkinson the honor of going before Congress to deliver the news at the Battle of of Saratoga. And uh, what what did Wilkinson do? First of all, he kept Congress waiting while he addressed personal matters. But then when he finally did appear, he inflated his own his own role in in the in the victory. But it helped seal his reputation and he was given the rank of brevet rank of uh, brigadier general and he was just 20 years old and this caused a lot of controversy among uh, among more senior continental officers and and stuff and you know as a as a result of that controversy he was forced to resign but he eventually made his way to you know kentucky and that's where the real the first major scandals really happened because as you sort as you insinuated uh, in the introduction, there there were two strong sides of the issue of Kentucky. Kentucky. One was succession from Virginia, which happened. One was for it to become part of uh, part of Virginia, and the other one was and become and and, and partly become a separate state as it was. But however, there was a third one, and it was a more secretive proposal that Wilkinson led. And it was for Kentucky to succeed from the Union and be car, become part of the Spanish Empire. Well, you know, a lot of people didn't know he was doing that. And you think back on that as, boy, that's treason, treasonous. And 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 Wilkinson went so far as to, to meet with the governor of Louisiana, you know, Spanish territory, a Spanish government. And in a real, uh, you know, amazing feat of treachery and arrogance, Wilkinson, you know, told them that they could deliver Kentucky uh, he could deliver Kentucky to the Spanish Empire, and that he can control trade and immigration down the down the Mississippi River Valley, and in turn he wanted a trade monopoly, he wanted a pension, and he wanted a rank in the Spanish uh, military, and so he, you know, he told the Spanish he could send the goods to uh, to the Spanish Empire, which would be a major military uh, a coup. 
And so he even went so far as to sign a document of loyalty to the Spanish Empire. But what's amazing about Wilkinson, who ironically has a street named after him to this day in Frankfort, Kentucky, the state capital, despite the fact that he's a traitor. But later, President Washington was looking for a new general, and he didn't pick Wilkinson. He picked uh, um, somebody else. Yeah, Anthony Wayne. But Wayne. And then when Wayne died, uh, Washington appointed uh, Wilkinson. So think of this. A man who was actively a traitor is, is the top commander of the United States uh, Army. And during that time, I mean, he tipped off the Spanish to about the upcoming Lewis and Clark. Uh, and he was one of the chief uh, cohorts of a, of a Burke conspiracy, which was to create a country right in the middle of America, you know, uh, an independent uh, nation. So, so this is a large lie. chunk of time that he has this post, if you think. I mean, because a lot happens in that time period. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was critical to the Because you're going from Washington at the and... time that... that Louisiana Purchase and Burr happens. I mean, Washington dies. There's two different presidents that come up. Uh, there, it's insane. It's it's basically having a spy at the highest level of government. Oh, it's absolutely true. And and he lied and cheated through his whole life. And sort of toward the end, he wound up, you know, going to Mexico and where he died in 1825. And he um. You know, he was really Kentucky's first major scandalous figure. And he's one of our nations. As an act, as that, I think, has the United States one of our first major scandalous figures and a major espionage character. Um, Agreed. You know, just to, he deserves, when I talked about movies earlier, I was like, this guy deserves a movie not to like yeah. laud praise upon him, but wow, what an interesting right. story. Yeah, not a lot of people know know the story. Just really amazing story. But let's jump ahead now to the Civil War area and Kentucky era rather. And Kentucky is a very divided state. Um, so between Wilkinson's entry into history and this period, there's been scandals. But we want people to read the book. We don't want to give them everything. And during the Civil War, we get introduced to a man some have called the Butcher of Kentucky. Let's talk about Kentucky during this time. And what gives General Stephen Burbridge this name? Yeah, well, that's uh, it's an excellent uh, tale of, of uh, Civil War drama, and I think it kind of demonstrates uh, how important Kentucky was uh, to uh, President Lincoln. Uh, of course, the Kentucky state government uh, never did vote to secede from the Union. Uh, the, the state remained neutral and slavery remained legal in Kentucky. So there, there were a lot of slaves in Kentucky, and, uh, but there were uh, even more Confederate sympathizers. Uh, the, uh, during the latter part of the war in particular, uh, after most of the uh, skirmishes and battles in Kentucky were over, uh, Lincoln was very concerned about these Confederate sympathizers uh, forming bands of marauders who would uh, prey upon citizens, uh, stealing their farm products or uh, raiding their stores for goods that they would uh, uh, try to get back to the Confederate Army, uh, which was uh, somewhat south, in, uh, mostly in Tennessee. But 
uh, Lincoln became so concerned about the Confederate sympathies uh, in Kentucky that he suspended the writ of habeas corpus and authorized his Union um, Army, which was uh, in charge of the administration of the state uh, for the Union, uh, to arrest uh, Confederate sympathizers and detain them uh, without a trial uh, until they were determined uh, to be sympathizers or not, in which case, if they were, they were imprisoned. But um, he put in charge through uh, General U.S. Grant, he put in charge General Stephen Burbridge, uh, who was actually a Kentuckian, uh, about 34 years old, and uh, a Union soldier who had distinguished himself uh, to some extent in several battles uh, earlier in the war. And uh, then Grant made him the uh, essentially the chief administrator of Kentucky. Yeah, so he wasn't just uh, a bureaucrat. I mean, he actually... He's seen action. Right, right, right. He was a soldier. In fact, during the time he was administrating the state, he went off and fought in a battle over in West Virginia. But uh, the most significant thing that he did, he was only in power for about a year, uh, from February of 1864 to February of 1865. But during that time, in order to carry out what he thought were Lincoln's directives to essentially pacify Kentucky and uh, to root out the Confederate sympathizers, he announced that uh, if there were raids uh, on the, what he called Union citizens, which is basically uh, any peaceful citizen in the state, and anybody died as a result of that, that he would execute four Confederate prisoners which, who were being held in uh, various camps and prisons around the state. And so he began this, uh, uh, to carry out this order uh, in the summer of 1864 uh, in response to a variety of random raids. He would pull uh, these people out of prison. Most of the time they were Confederate soldiers who'd been captured on the battlefield, but sometimes they were just uh, citizens, Kentucky citizens who had been deemed to be sympathizers. And he would pull them out to a location uh, essentially close to where uh, the the Confederate raid or the sympathizers uh, raid had taken place, and he would execute them. Really? Wow. In, uh, in the middle of uh, uh, downtown in these little communities. In fact, it happened just a few miles from where I lived, over in the, you know, where I live in the, the little town of Midway. Uh, several people were pulled out of a nearby prison and uh, and executed. And this happened uh, numerous times uh, all over, uh, primarily central Kentucky. Uh, but they estimate that uh, about 200 prisoners were executed in just a period of uh, six months, probably toward uh, the end of 1864 and the beginning of 1865. And the implications of this uh, were great. And essentially, it, it drove a lot of Kentuckians away from their Union uh, sympathies. And they became not necessarily Confederate sympathizers, but they became anti-Union. And this was to really play out in the aftermath of the Civil War, uh, when, as a lot of historians have said, Kentucky joined the Confederacy after the Civil War ended. Uh, we were uh, 
very anti-reconstruction efforts uh, that that uh, the union attempted to uh, promulgate in Kentucky, uh, and so reconstruction did not last very long here, uh, nor was it very effective in uh, in bringing Kentucky uh, back into the union, essentially, uh, although they had not been part of the Confederacy. But uh, Kentucky was. I think partly as a result of Burbridge's actions uh, and these bloody executions that he carried out, uh, I think uh, there was a, a lot of violence, and uh, uh, particularly against black people in Kentucky, uh, for 30 or 40 years after the Civil War. There were lynchings, uh, there were organized efforts to uh, keep black people from voting to keep them from living in certain areas, uh, to keep them from being employed uh, anywhere other than on the farms where they used to used to work as slaves, basically. So uh, I think Burbridge did a lot to, uh, to really uh, cause chaos in Kentucky for years uh, after the Civil War. Do you think that... To me, one of the scariest things about that story is the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. Just the idea that you no longer have that. I understand a war was going on, but you're in a state that is a border state, and you're trying to keep it in the Union and happy. I mean, even like with the Emancipation Proclamation, the slaves were only freed in the—if you were an enslaved person, you're only freed if you're in a rebelling state— not in the border states that still had slavery because Lincoln's trying to keep the border states happy. Maryland still had um, their enslaved. Um, Kentucky still has their enslaved, but that seemed just to go against the grain to suspend the writ of habeas corpus, and that opened up the road for him to do this. Yeah, that, that's interesting that you mentioned that because I would say that, uh, you know, this long after the Civil War, uh, where we are now, what, 180 years after the Civil War or more, um, I would say that the suspension of habeas corpus, um, historians and lawyers, I think, would agree that that was uh, probably Lincoln's single most questionable act uh, during the Civil War. Uh, legally questionable, uh, morally questionable, uh, uh, you know, arguably a, a gross violation of the, of the United States Constitution. But he did it. Uh, in his words, he was protecting uh, the Union and particularly protecting Union soldiers who were, of course, uh, uh, all over Kentucky. And, and uh, he thought that uh, that these raids in particular, these Confederate raids and, and other sympathetic acts, uh, whether they were by uh, judges or newspaper editors uh, in editorials, uh, politicians, he thought those were uh, potentially endangering Union soldiers uh, and endangering uh, the Union itself. And, of course, he, he's well known to have said that uh, if we lose Kentucky, we lose the war. So, you know, he was, uh, he was, I guess you'd say, desperate to, uh, to keep Kentucky under some control, even if they didn't. Uh, and, and, in fact, three times as many Kentuckians fought on the Union side in the Civil War than on the Confederate side. But you had a, 
sizable uh, Confederate sympathizing, uh, including, of course, uh, the slave uh, owners yeah. uh, who were all over Kentucky, including in uh, the cities uh, where slaves were, o- were owned. And, uh, and you had Camp Nelson uh, in central Kentucky uh, where, uh, f- where slaves were recruited, uh, where they could gain their freedom by enlisting in the Union Army. Uh, so you had a lot of uh, anger and hostility toward uh, toward the Union uh, because of some of these activities uh, that were, were leading to uh, freedom for slaves. And, and uh, of course, these were uh, a significant portion of the uh, investment that a lot of these uh, farm owners and, and uh, business owners had uh, were were the investment they had in their slaves, so that to lose that uh, to the union was uh, was detrimental to their bottom line. So they were they were very hostile. So, uh, but I think Burbridge was heavy-handed in uh, carrying out Lincoln's orders. Yeah, I do too. And then, of course, you know, after the Civil War, with the lynchings and everything that took place, I misplaced anger. I, 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 100% misplaced anger, uncalled for. I don't... So, there were more people that did not own slaves than did. My, the thing I always wondered about is how did they, especially after the war, the upper class that had had the enslaved, who looked at enslaved people as property, how, you know, how did they round up so many people to you know, carry out these missions, you know, basically of hate, really, um, against black people. How did they, you know, incite them to go out and um, at night and carry out these raids against people? Um, I know you've had it in Kentucky. They were here in South Carolina and in Georgia. Um, you know, what did, you know, the poor farmer or whoever have the gain or were they just, you know, misplacing the anger and looking at it and blaming the black person for it and seeing them as like, okay, wow. So the union said that they now wanted to fight the war to free the slaves. Now we're going after you, the former slave. Well, yeah, I think, uh, I think the, it's fear. Uh, you know, politicians have always used fear to some extent. And uh, uh, the, the state legislature at the time reflected, I think, this fear. There were laws against uh, uh, blacks uh, living in certain places. There were uh, laws keeping blacks from voting, uh, you know, working uh, and testifying. A black person could not testify in court against the white person. Uh, so... And, and you had roving bands of these regulators and these people, sort of similar to the Klan. Uh, these were mm-hmm. not uh, necessarily highly organized and certainly uh, operated not with the uh, uh, approval of the government, but, but sort of a tacit blessing uh, uh, for, their, for their roving around and, uh, for example, pulling black people out of jails and lynching them or uh, burning their farms, you know, that kind of thing, just to try to keep them uh, from uh, or their full role in, in society. Uh, and 
you know, that was one of the unfortunate uh, results of all this were, were laws that we had on the books for years that uh, segregated uh, the black community, uh, you know, and kept them from gaining their full, uh, full measure of, uh, of citizenship. And I, and I think part of that, part of that too, is, you know, reconstruction was, you know, as we say in the book was intended to change the racist system, but, you know, it had a lesser impact in Kentucky than in others, you know, even in other states in the deep South. I mean, Kentucky's response to reconstruction, you know, was, you know, was similar to some other, other states, but Kentucky was, you know, conservative. It had conservative Democrats who were opposing this new set of norms and policies that the federal government was pushing. And it had Kentucky had radical Republicans who supported the, the change. And, you know, as a couple of historians have said, not us, you know, Kentucky didn't go through a period of reconstruction, but of readjustment, you know, after the, hmm. you know, after the war. So, yeah. Well, I kept you guys already for 30 minutes. You guys mind if we go for a little bit longer? Is that all right? That's fine with me. All right. Cause we still, we've only got to cover two stories and I have a couple more I'd like to get to. And cause one of them I really like, it stayed with me for some reason. I really like the story, William Talby. Um, I should say the story should serve as a warning, but uh, I feel like it got forgotten probably as soon as it happened and nobody listened to the warning. Uh, sure. Wow. So a minister, yeah. uh, well, a congressman. You, <laughs> yeah, well, William Tal- Talby is an interesting person. And um, the, the the story about William Talby, Talby was, um, you know, one that sort of, it continued to perpetuate the image of Kentucky being a violent state. Now, Toby was a congressman, a U.S. congressman from Kentucky, and he served two terms from 1885 to 1889. And so this is, you know, during the, during, you know, you know, it's 20 years after the, after the Civil War. Well, Toby, the other actor in this case is a guy named Charles Kincaid. Now, Kincaid was a Louisville Times. Washington correspondent. And in 1888, he reported that Toby was found in a compromising way with a young woman in the U.S. Patent Office. So here we've got a politician, and we've got, uh, you know, we've got a sex scandal, and and we wind up coming up upon violence. So it's got a lot of stuff that make for a really juicy um, um, controversy. Well, this scandal in this article by Ken Cade marked the end of Toby's political career. He was he was done. And so what often is the case still today, although there are rules, so it gets delayed a little bit, but Toby became a lobbyist as an ex-congressman. And uh, Kincaid, working in Washington for the for the Louisville Times, they would pass each other in, in Congress all the time. And in, in the Capitol, I mean. And um you know, James um, James Clotter in a podcast that I listened to said the, the former congressman would go up and pull on Kincaid's nose or his ear, and that kind of uh, that kind of uh, I guess in my judgment, seamlessly child 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 uh, childish behavior. Yeah, just bullying uh, him basically. Uh, bu- bullying, <laughs> and that's 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 a better word. And uh, in uh, on February twenty eighth of eighteen ninety, Toby came across. Kincaid in the Capitol, and he threatened the journalist. And so, according to the Capitol doorkeeper, 
you know, Paulby grabbed Kincaid by the coat collar and Kincaid said, you know, and, and he said to Kincaid, come out in the corridor with me. Well, Kincaid responded, you know, no, he's in no physical, you know, he's no, and no, has no ability to get into a physical contest. So, you know, they were separated and they went on their way. Well, later that day, well, first of all, let me tell you, Tobby was a big man. He was very strappy and he was a foot taller than Kincaid. Kincaid was a frail man and, and stuff. Um, but, um, uh, a couple hours later on this this incident, they saw each other again in the U.S. Capitol building. Kincaid then immediately drew a revolver, Kincaid the reporter, and shot Toby in the face, just up near the eye. And Kincaid made no effort to run away. You know, uh, Toby collapsed, and physicians came to his care, and they thought he would survive, but he didn't, and he died um, on a few, you know, some days later, March 11th of that year. And, uh, Kincaid was charged with murder. So we, here we have a reporter, uh, executing in essence, a former congressman. And uh, like I said, it perpetuated the image of Kentucky as a violent state. And, um, there was a trial in 1891 and Kincaid was actually acquitted of the murder and he never disputed it or anything. It was, but there were a lot of people who testified in the trial that Toby you know, taunted him and threatened him and, and all of that. And, and so Kincaid went on to, uh, you know, labor later have a little bit of a career. He was, he served in the Kentucky railroad commission. He was an American diplomat and uh, he actually died fairly young in 1896 at the age of 51. But, uh, what's interesting in, and I used to go to Washington a whole lot for work and, and, and pleasure there's a spot in the Capitol that a friend showed me who worked for a congressman and uh, years before I knew of this story. And he showed me this blood on the steps inside the cat, just off the, off the rotunda. And that is Toby's blood. It still stains the Capitol steps to this date. And if you ever go to it, you can try to try to find it. It's very prominent and it's uh, in the, in the, in the darkness of the stain. Yeah. I need to, Before I go up there again, when when we can go back up, I need to get in touch with you and find out where it is so I can see that. Now, think about this, though. That sizzled for two years and before that actually happened. Mm -hmm. Before Toby challenges him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, They they were harassing him because, you know, Toby became a, a lobbyist immediately afterwards and he was shot a year you know, the the year date wise um, after his term ended. I want to read what he wrote, Kincaid wrote about the lady because I feel like he would probably, in today's time period, get in trouble for what he wrote about the lady. Um, Kincaid claimed yeah. the woman was a little daisy, bright as a sunbeam, and saucy has a bowl of jelly, petite a figure, but plump has a partridge. Yep, that's true. And yeah, and I, I I think you're quoting out of the book because yeah. I do remember I do remember that. And and there were other political scandals. I mean, scandals that involved, you know, that kind of double standard and and, and the role of women and and uh, uh, second you know just second class citizens. And I'm not talking about voting. It was just it, beliefs by the men. I mean, you know, one of the you know, when we, I, I'm sure we won't get into this. It's a long story, but, you know, there's a Breckenridge Pollard scandal in our book where Breckenridge is one of the most famous names in Kentucky politics. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had such, uh, 
such beliefs that were just incredible about the role of the women in the place of women in, you know, in society. It's insane. So, I mean, just think about that. Think about what just happened yesterday with old uh, New York Governor Cuomo and <laughs> what happened with him. And, you know, it looks right. like, you know, I don't know if he's going to get charged or not. There still seems to be a double standard going on. Um, yeah, there's no doubt about it. It, it. One of the lessons in the book is that, you know, history certainly, you know, repeats itself, you yeah. know, and then and and some of the stuff is civil. I mean, I'm not an attorney, John. Is some of it seems criminal, and some of it is civil. And uh, you know, and and that seems to be the case. Uh, you know, throughout history, it just repeats itself. And you know, and we all believe on this. That's listening to this podcast probably is a great way to uh, learn learn about today is to find out what happened in history. So yeah. All right. So we get. There's a little bit of time left. We got. I'm gonna. We had two more I wanted to talk about, but man, we we've, we've talked about so many interesting things. I'm gonna give y'all the choice. Um, either one, a f- story I find more interesting than DB Cooper, that's honest dictate, or Governor Goible. Which one? Oh, we can talk about dictate for a moment. Uh, I'll try to make it brief. Um, uh, he was actually, his name was James Tate, uh, but he was affectionately called Uncle Dick uh, by his constituents. And uh, Kentuckians generally loved the guy. You know, he was elected to 11 consecutive terms as Kentucky State Treasurer. But then uh, deep into his, uh, his tenure, he began to... Um, loan money to his friends out of the state treasury or just outright give it to them. Uh, it appears that he began to invest uh, on his own with some state money in some questionable uh, uh, activities like uh, Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky coal and bourbon. And he was trying to get rich using uh, uh, taxpayer dollars that uh, he alone was responsible for keeping in the uh, in the vault in the state capitol uh, and eventually uh the, the, there was a clamor for uh a thorough investigation of his books and he fended that off for quite some time uh, over a year he he managed to evade and uh sidestep any kind of uh any kind of look at his uh, actual uh accounts and eventually, uh, he said he was going to Louisville from Frankfurt. He told his uh, told his uh, people in his office that he would be back in a couple of days. And uh, he got on a train. He, uh, one person saw him leaving with a with a large sack of gold coins. Uh, but uh, I think, unsurprisingly, I think the the uh, vast uh, percentage of the amount that he ended up uh, being accused of stealing, he'd already stolen and probably parked in, uh, in banks and other places. Uh, but he got on that train, left for Louisville, and uh, spent a couple of days in Louisville just sort of visiting some of his old haunts, having, uh, having some fun. And then he got on a train for Cincinnati, and that was the last time he was seen by anybody who knew him. Uh, one fellow saw him get off the train in Cincinnati, and uh, he was never seen again. Uh, it, it, with any verifiable sighting, anyway, uh, by anybody who knew who he was uh, in Kentucky. 
there were he he did send some letters to his family, uh, one from Canada, I believe, one from California, and then one from China. Uh, and, and but he the, the the upshot of it was he he totally disappeared. And and when they went in and examined his books and and what was actually left in the vault, uh, he made off with what appears to be about $7 million in today's money. Uh, <laughs> keep in mind that the state treasury at the time was, was probably not much more than that. Uh, you know, state government did not do, uh, did not have all the responsibilities it has today for a system of public education and highways and uh, that kind of thing. But, uh, so there was very little money, uh, that actually, uh, in the possession of state government, and he apparently had loaned it out, given it away, or taken uh, the vast majority of it. So, uh, a few years later, he uh, his daughter uh, went to court to have him declared dead, which under Kentucky law you could do after uh, a person has not been seen for six years. And when she went to court to collect on his uh, insurance policies, which he had two life insurance policies. Uh, of course, the insurance companies were uh, were battling that, and uh, they hired uh, a Pinkerton agency, the detectives, to try to find Dick Tate. And I, it looks like the, the Pinkertons probably planted some news stories in random uh, newspapers around the country, uh, which came to be seen as uh, dictate sightings. He was cited uh, working for a, a fruit company uh, in Central America. You know, he was cited uh, in China. So the, the idea of the insurance companies was to uh, keep him from being declared dead by the court. You know, you're and a they, lawyer. They, Wouldn't you know, that be insurance fraud in and of itself? In a way? Well, you know, they, they were planting these stories probably just to delay the, the, the case. They didn't want to pay the money. Yeah. Um, and so if they could create some level of doubt uh, about his death, then uh, they could probably delay the case indefinitely. Uh, if, if the court thought that there were legitimate sightings of it and that he may turn up again in Kentucky, then they'd be reluctant to rule that he was dead. But Eventually they did, and the daughter collected on the insurance policies and apparently uh, lived a very comfortable life uh, for the rest of her life. She married a, a gentleman in Europe, and uh, I think she lived out her life over there. But uh, I think Dick Tate had been planning his disappearance for some time. He, mm -hmm. uh, after his 11th re-election, he uh, bought a house in South Frankfurt uh, and that uh, put it in his wife's name, solely in his wife's name. This was uh, just four or five months before he actually disappeared. So I think he uh, he knew what he was up to, and he knew that any kind of uh, any kind of close look at his books uh, would reveal that he'd basically been a thief uh, for for going on twenty years. And so he did not want to get he did not want to get in prison. So he uh, so he left. See, I love the way it's more interesting to me than D.B. Cooper's. D.B. Cooper was just on a plane, hijacked it, jumped out of the plane. You didn't see him. He had to have this whole plan over the course of 11 years. 
And then that last year, putting it in motion when they're trying to look at his books. I mean, he's doing this in plain sight. That's an interesting, that's more interesting than D.B. Cooper's story to me. Uh, Yeah. Dictate, again, another one in the book, deserves his own movie. Probably a lot easier to disappear in the uh, 1880s than it would be now, I think. Maybe. Perhaps, yeah, but you got the Pinkertons involved, you know, the everybody knows about the Pinkertons. Uh, I don't know, just to me, really, you know, interesting story, <laughs> the fact that he uh, ends up in China somehow. Uh, yeah. Well, he's, the, uh, he's also the reason that Kentucky, uh, soon after, when they... Uh, when they uh, revised their state constitution, they adopted some very strict term limits for public officials. Uh, so for over 100 years, uh, the state treasurer could only serve one four-year term uh, and could not be reelected to a, a second consecutive term. Uh, that was recently changed, but um, Dick Tate was the reason that we, uh, that we limited the, the, the terms of constitutional officers oh honest dictate that's a good one to end it on all right gentlemen thank you for joining me today well thank you for having us of course thanks johnny good talking to you and thank you the audience for listening hidden history of kentucky political scandals is available now on arcadiapublishing.com and wherever local books are sold as always, thanks to Jane Bill's unnamed band project for the show's theme song. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram. If you have questions for me, you can reach out to me online at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. Thanks, and I will speak with you again soon.